But we're going to dive into the Word a little bit this morning and continue our journey through the book of Romans. And so you're going to want a Bible. If you have a Bible, just uh, go on and open up to Romans chapter 8. If you need a Bible, just slip up a hand. We'll have some people walk around with Bibles and they can put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along. So this passage out of Romans 8, this is, is one of my favorite, uh, I feel like I say that all the time, but I mean, really, Romans 8 is, uh, it comes to sort of the pinnacle of Paul's letter to the Romans. Remember that Paul is, is trying to rally this diverse group of Jesus followers in this pagan empire called Rome to help them understand what their identity is in Christ and who it is that he's called them to be and what it is that he's called them to do. And the first place that he roots them is in the gospel. That it is not by anything that they have done. It is not by anything they can earn, but simply by the grace of God in the work of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, that they've been saved. And that is what unites them, whether they're born Jewish or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, pagan or God-fearing. All of them are united by that free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And then from that place, of recognition that by our own sinfulness, we stand condemned before God, except that God showed up in the person of Jesus and chose to sacrifice himself on our behalf, that we could be reconciled and reunited to God our Father. And then from that is this incredible invitation to live into that freedom, to live into that grace. We talked about this over the last few weeks, that there are many of us who know what it, it means to live forgiven, to trust God for our death one day. But the question becomes, do we know what it means to live free? And do we really believe that Jesus knows the best way to live? Not just how to take care of me when I die, but do I really believe that Jesus knows the best way to live? And that Jesus has given us this incredible gift of his presence and the spirit of God that we can now live in the fullness of God. And so I want to read this passage, and there's just a few things I want to draw out of it for this morning. And hopefully even as we read, you can see some of the significance of having Nicole shared last week about the foster care, and Sarah shared this week about what's happening in Benin in regards to what our Father in Heaven has done for us. So I'll start in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
So then, my brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Some rich language, obviously, in this text. And we don't have time this morning to dive into all of the depths of this passage, though, as I say every week, way more important than anything I have to say up here is what God wants to be speaking to you through his word. So my encouragement is spend time reading Romans. Spend time just chewing on Romans 8. And just ask God, God, what do you want me to know? What are you saying to me through this passage? What are you revealing? Where, where, where are you? Like, just what we talked about with, with Sarah and with Jace. It's like, what is the next thing you're inviting me into? What is this passage? What is, what is your word speaking to me? But what we see that is clear in this passage That those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons, the daughters of God. In verse 12, so then, brothers and sisters, that word there, just so you know, based on whatever your translation is, uh, is it just the idea of siblings? We are debtors. Now, one thing, I don't know if you've ever been in debt. As an American, the odds are the answer is yes. I mean, the stats on the amount of debt that we live under the burden of in our society is absolutely staggering. And so if you've ever lived under the weight of debt, you know how crushing that can be. And especially when, when it's debt that's beyond your ability to repay. And, all of us, and you realize that all of your thoughts become consumed by this reality that you, don't, that you are not free. That there's somebody else that, in a sense, has ownership over your life. And Paul intentionally uses this language of debtors. I, I remember when we were first married, 
um, we made the not so smart decision to put me in charge of the money which in hindsight now knowing that Sadie is a much more brilliant well human than I am but uh, definitely when it comes to matters of business and finance and all of that that would have been the smarter way to go but the thought was I'm the husband now you know I was 21 I was an idiot but uh, I'm the husband now and so I'll take care of us financially which just meant like if I remember to pay bills they got paid sometimes and uh, and also meant that I didn't actually know how much we were spending but we were spending, and if it seemed like a good idea, then surely there's money somewhere, and we will spend it. And we got a few years into our marriage, and all of a sudden realized that we were under an incredible amount of debt. We had a car payment, and we racked up these credit card bills, and it got to the point that like we just couldn't just keep up. You know, it just it, it was so much so that um, it it was paralyzing. And uh, and I came across this book at at Borders. I don't know if that place even exists anymore. Uh, it was, uh, it was um, a Dave Ramsey book, and it talked about, you know, live free, get out of debt, and I was like, man, we need this book, and, uh, and so Sadie and I read that book together, and we began, began that painful process of going through the Dave Ramsey principles, and make, getting our debt snowball, and, and paying it down month after month after month, and I can remember, we actually made a decision early on that we kind of knew our, our final moment of victory, our, our freedom moment, that uh, we would be debt-free, that we'd finally write that last check to pay off our debt. And so we decided we were paying a certain amount towards debt every month. And we decided the, the, the next month after we were debt-free that we would use what was typically our normal debt payment and we were going to throw a big party for all of our friends. And we called it our debt-free party. And so we met in a friend's backyard and had this massive, massive, I mean, for us, it felt like it was a massive, but this huge celebration just to simply say, we are free. We're free. And Paul uses this language of debtors, of, of calling back what he's been talking about for the last few chapters. of like, you are enslaved to your sin. Death has a hold on your life. Your thoughts are consumed by the reality that you can't catch up. But thanks be to God, who has saved us in Christ. And then he makes this incredible statement where he says, yeah, you are still debtors. You still, you still owe your life to something or to someone. But the one that you owe your life to, his whole business isn't to extract payment from you. His whole business is to give, is to give you life and peace and freedom. That's who you're in debt to now. And so Paul begins with this thought, yeah, sure, you are still in debt, but not to the flesh. You don't owe that life any, any longer. You are free. And he goes again, this uh, thought train that goes off to the side about where he just repeats again. He's like, he wants them to get it. Listen, if you live according, if you live in bondage to slavery, or to the slavery of sin, it leads to death. It doesn't go anywhere that you want to go, but you don't have to live that way anymore. And he recognizes, sure, your body is still dead because of sin. We live in these decaying flesh bodies of ours. We know as we're getting older that they just seem to keep falling apart, don't they? You wake up in the morning, you're like, how does that even hurt? I didn't do anything. No one else, just me? Yeah, thank you. I heard some creaking when some of y'all sat down, I know. 
But sure, yes, this body is dying, but the most important part of you, your spirit, your soul, it's alive in a way that this fleshly body can't destroy. And all, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are indeed the children, the sons and daughters of God. And then this powerful verse, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but instead you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That we are no longer slaves to fear. That language he uses of, of, of being an orphan or as compared to, to being adopted. This adoption language. Jack Frost, which is a great name for an author, but that is his real name, not the Christmas character. He wrote a book called Spiritual Slavery to Spiritual Sonship, and this is what he wrote. When you possess an orphan heart, you never truly feel at home anywhere. You're afraid to trust, afraid of rejection, and afraid to open up your heart to receive love. And unless you're able to receive love, you cannot unconditionally express love, even to your own family. You can be born again, go to church every week, tithe, avidly study the Bible, and do all the right Christian stuff, and still have an orphan heart. Being saved does not automatically mean feeling secure, loved, and accepted as a son or a daughter of God. They are two different things. So I just wonder this morning, as we're processing this passage, how many of us, having been free, forgiven and set free, still live as orphans? Still live afraid, insecure, striving for acceptance and affection, afraid to trust, afraid of rejection. Now, how we view God is, is how we perceive our own fathers. And some of you have amazing dads. The truth is, though, none of us were raised by perfect fathers, were we? Now, some of you know what it feels like to be rejected or to have an absent uh, father or, or one that you felt like you were just never measured up or were good enough for. And so often we carry the weight of those expectations when it comes to our biological parents into the way that we see God. We see him even as angry or distant or as waiting to come down on us or to punish that we're never going to measure up, we're never going to be good enough, that we have to strive for approval or acceptance. But what Jesus Christ makes clear is that you have been accepted. You've been fully embraced, even in your brokenness and your sinfulness, when you least deserved it. That the heart of God is the heart of a father. That Jesus, when he says all the ways that he could reveal God, says that I have come to reveal the Father. And going all the way back to the beginning of creation, God's desire and design was to live in intimate relationship with his children, 
where they would respond, recognize and respond to his voice. And then in relationship with God, they would live in intimacy, vulnerability with one another. And then together they would go into the world to have dominion and to steward this creation that God has given us. But sin, through a wrench in all of that, it distorted our perception of God and caused us in shame to go into hiding, that we became dominated by fear, anticipating our punishment, overwhelmed by guilt. And in doing so, our, our guilt turned to blame and accusation, and we turned against one another in self-protection and selfishness. And all of a sudden, it was sin that reigned king, that the demands and desires of our heart are what drove us even in re, uh, to those that we were closest to. And we throw up walls to protect because we're afraid we're going to be hurt. And we keep our distance to stay safe because we're afraid we're going to be rejected. And what Paul is pleading with the Romans to get is that you don't have to live that way any longer. You have been fully embraced, fully accepted, and fully set free by your God and by God the Father in heaven, and nothing can change that. That the cry and longing of the human heart is for us to step into that identity as adopted sons or daughters. And in the the in uh, biblical times, adoption wasn't just simply an, an act of compassion for the vulnerable. In fact, that form of adoption was almost unheard of, the way that we talk about fostering and adoption in our world today. In fact, it was Christians that invented the idea of adoption out of, um, out of compassion. Up to that point in the Roman world, what the word adoption meant, which is what Paul is referring to uh, that they would have understood, is adoption was actually a, a way of, of climbing the social ladder or maintaining your social status. And so a, a, um, what was called uh, the, the, well, the patriarch, the potter, the father of the family that had no sons as heirs to pass his inheritance or his legacy or his titles down to would then adopt a, a, a member of another family, a male child that would become his son. And as an act of adoption, that son would take on the titles of that father, would take on the inheritance of that father. And in that way, the father could ensure that his inheritance was going on to the next generation as he chose. And so Paul takes that language of, of social status and so, social climbing and says, no, this is what God has done for you. The creator of this universe has taken you out of one family and placed you into his family. He's called you by name, but then he's given you his name. And as he's given you his name, he's given you his inheritance, his kingdom that now belongs to you. Now, ironically, Paul, using the creation language, points out, this is what was yours from the beginning of time in the first place. You are meant to rule and to reign in this world, to have dominion over creation alongside of God, but we screwed all that up. And in fact, he continues on, and he says that, that not only are we groaning, longing to step into our identity as sons and daughters of God, but creation is groaning in anticipation for the sons and daughters to be revealed. 
that up since Genesis chapter 3, creation has been subject to corruption and futility, but longs for the day when the sons and, da and daughters of God are glorified and revealed by their Father. So what does that mean for us? This isn't just like high and lofty theological language. It's the reality that the most true thing about you in the eyes of God, forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ, is that you are an adopted son or daughter, fully accepted and fully embraced with the inheritance of God that belongs to you as his saint. That we still live in a world of brokenness and pain and corruption. It's the now, but the not yet of the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul uses that language where he says, you have been adopted. And then a few verses later, he says, and we groan in anticipation for when we will be adopted. Is he contradicting himself? No. One is true fully in the eyes of God and we are living into that reality, but one day we will know it fully. When God will wipe away every tear and death will be no more, and we will be fully present in the reality of the living God. But until then, until then, we learn what it means to, to live in confidence as sons or da and daughters in the unconditional love of our Father that no pain or problem in this world can shake. So that, and listen to this, Sons and daughters are meant to grow up to be mothers and fathers. And this world desperately is crying out for spiritual fathers and mothers. But to become a father or mother, you must first learn what it means to be a son or a daughter. And so we tell stories like Nicole of engaging and, and fostering. There's a stat, I don't know if she shared it last week, that there are 20,000 Protestant churches in Georgia. I think we're at 14,000 children in the foster care system. In other words, if every church just fostered one child, we'd no longer have a foster care problem. Actually, Texas just celebrated that they have surpassed the number of foster care families as, as children that are in need in the system. And a lot of that was driven by churches saying we're going to step into that void of fatherlessness. We are going to be fathers and mothers to a forgotten and a lost generation. And that may, that's talking about foster care, but that is in, in, in countless ways that God is inviting us to engage in this world in the confidence that comes as spiritual fathers and mothers that's rooted in our true identity as sons and daughters. So what does that mean for you? Where are you living in fear? Where are you living and striving? Where do you still believe that you don't measure up in the eyes of God and you have something to prove? Where are you still living under the weight of rejection or failure? In other words, where is Jesus inviting you to encounter him in a way that sets you free? And those of you that are living in to this, this identity as a son or daughter of God, what are the ways God is calling you forward as a mother or father for the next generation? to engage in the brokenness and the pain of this world because you carry the inheritance of the kingdom with you wherever you go. And that may be across the street. 
and that may be across the world. The question for you is, Jesus, what's the next thing you're inviting me to do? And so we're going to continue on and, and worship in response. And we're going to make space just as we do each week for communion and that, that act of remembrance of the presence and the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. As we take communion, remember that Jesus with his disciples took that bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. The presence of God available for us in the person of Jesus. In John 20, Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. So even as we take the bread, it's not only an act of receiving, but it's also an act of sending. Because we are adopted into a family that then sends us out just like the Father. And then Jesus took that cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of a new covenant, new relationship, an eternal connection with an eternal living God. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take communion, it's that, that act of faith of receiving what Christ has done for us on our behalf, giving his body, his life, and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. But then Jesus, three days later, rising from the dead, invites us into a whole new way of life, an eternal way of living. So even as we take communion, I invite you to just come and kneel and take to the cross whatever needs to die. That you are no, let that spirit here, that, spirit, that orphan spirit die at the cross with Jesus so you can stand in confidence as adopted sons or daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these eternal words that have such eternal weight. And so Lord, I pray for each one of us here. God, we even just call to mind right now, what are the ways that we are living in fear? What are the ways that we're living in insecurity or striving? This fear of rejection, the fear of not measuring up, this fear of abandonment, this fear of not having enough, not being enough. And Lord, I pray that we could be honest with you. And so I invite you, even as you just pray at your seat, to just pray something like this. I confess in the name of the Lord Jesus, whatever it is that's coming to mind. And then in light of that confession, Lord, God, what do you want us to know? What is true? As we let our sin die on the cross, what are you wanting to birth in us? What are you wanting to give us in exchange? So by your Holy Spirit, Lord, will you speak deep into the hearts of each person, and myself included, you are loved. You are known. You are forgiven. You are free. You are no longer slaves.
You are a child of God because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you receive what the Father has done for you?